morning we'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Amen. Good morning, church. It is a blessing to be together, and I want to thank your leadership for the opportunity to stand before you this morning. Uh, I recognize all too well that uh, when an eldership uh, trusts you enough to, to stand in the pulpit to deliver God's word, that, that they are entrusting you with no small thing. And so to the elders this morning, I want to say thank you. I've enjoyed getting to know you, enjoyed our fellowship times together, our study times, uh, and I appreciate you more and more. To Andy and, and to your good family, to Logan and Lacey, thank y'all uh, for the way you've hosted me, specifically in your homes, or in your home, and then sharing the stories about the coffee cup proposal. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know you uh, and spending time with you. To everyone else, thank you for your kindness. Uh, I appreciate Andy allowing me and helping me set up the tables out in the foyer for Freed Hardeman University as well as for Kyle Publications. Uh, some of you already know this from this weekend, some of you don't. Uh, Kyle Publications is a nonprofit that my wife and I founded over 10 years ago now. Uh, and our mission, our goal is to encourage families to develop uh, stronger faith, to grow spiritually, because our belief is if the church is going to be stronger, that the homes must be stronger. And so we try to offer resources that will equip homes, will call up fathers, call up mothers uh, to train at home, to train their families at home, that will allow for in-depth Bible study, some from devotional standpoint, uh, some for independent study standpoint. And of course, there's books uh, that we offer on our website. I believe they're all gone from here on, on leadership in the home, uh, marriage in the home. Uh, raising teenage daughters or raising daughters, raising sons. Uh, we've got new products that are coming out soon. I've, I've got a book that I've written regarding the men of the book of James. Uh, it's a book for men, and you're saying the men of the book of James. What do you mean? Well, you'll have to get the book and see. Uh, but we've also got a book coming out for uh, leadership for young men uh, that would be great for fathers to go through with their sons or even congregations to consider that. So I want to encourage you to look at that table, but also Freed Hardeman University. I get to recruit for their College of Biblical Studies, and it's an honor to do so. The Lord's Church is losing every year too many ministers. Uh, we're not producing enough ministers to make up for the numbers that we're losing. Uh, and so there are some congregations that will gather together today. They do not have an individual that will stand before them and proclaim God's Word. They, they may turn on a video uh, of an individual who preached uh, another lesson or they may be watching an online service currently. Uh, so the reality is that, that we as the Lord's Church, we really do have a need to increase the production, the training 
of young men to preach God's Word. At Freed Hardeman University, our Bible department, uh, still stands on the Word of God. Uh, Freed Hardeman's been around for 151 years, and we unapologetically will say that we stand on God's Word. Uh, we offer many different emphasis within our College of Biblical Studies, from uh, apologetics to biblical languages to preaching to youth and family ministry to missions. Uh, a lot of different areas that you can go into. And of course, I would love to talk with you about that. But Freed Hardeman has a lot more to offer as well than merely our Bible department. We offer a, a nursing program that has a very high success rate, a business program, an education program, and our graduates from our education program are very highly sought after. Uh, so there's a lot good going on. But I want to encourage you in this way if I can. Uh, every summer we have what is called Horizons. It's a summer camp uh, that allows young people from across the country to to come to Freed Hardeman to get an experience, a taste of what Freed Hardeman might be. We have congregations that will send their young people uh, because they recognize something. And this is something I would like to plant within your minds. The congregation really does play a major role in the faithfulness of young people. And part of that is encouraging Christian education when it comes to where they might want to go to college. The reality is your young people will be influenced by their professors. They will be influenced by those in the dorm rooms. They will most likely marry someone that they meet in that time of their life. Congregations can do a great service to the Lord's church by emphasizing universities like Freed Hardeman University. I want to encourage you to consider sending your children to Horizons next summer as a camp. I want to encourage you beyond just kind of independently doing it, do it as a collective body. Uh, allow individuals to come over to see the campus. You might find that some of your teenagers would consider Christian education, whereas before, maybe they had only considered secular education. But either way, what you will know, you're encouraging is that that next phase of their life be at least considering Christian education. And of course, I may be biased, but I think Freed Hardeman's the best. Uh, and so I want to encourage you in that. If you have any questions about Freed Hardeman, let me know. Young people, please, if you, if you like me, if you uh, want to see me continue to have a job with them, fill out an inquiry card so I don't get fired, okay? That's, I'm going to ask you to help me out this morning and fill out one of those inquiry cards and give Freed Hardeman permission to send you an email, to send you a letter just to communicate with you. Uh, and maybe Freed Hardeman would be a great option for you. So thank you. Thank you for allowing me to bring both of those tables. Let's go to our Father in prayer. And then we're going to get right in this morning to uh, what I've entitled like-mindedness. And I want to set that pace for you. But I believe this is a fundamental lesson that's going to apply to our homes. And it's also going to apply to our congregation. So let's go to our Father in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And we're, we're mindful of that regularly. Heavenly Father, on a day that our nation gathers together collectively to remember the events of September 11th, 2001, as we turn our televisions on and we see the reading of the names and the tolling of the bells, Lord, we're mindful of sacrifice. We're mindful of sacrifice of those for this country who have given their lives uh, for, for decades. But Lord, we're also mindful of, uh, of, of specifically your sacrifice. And Lord, as we are... Uh, I guess just a little bit more today perhaps reminiscing on, on the blessing when other people give their lives for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we're, 
we're not so short-sighted that we forget that the ultimate blessing of sacrifice has been and will always be your son's death on the cross. But Lord, we praise you today because his tomb was empty and it remains empty. Thank you. Thank you for calling him forth. Lord, thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you for the fact that he lives and he makes intercession for us today. And Lord, we're grateful that we can call you Father. That we can even come before you with bowed heads. Because he said we could do so in his name. And so Lord, today we're grateful for his sacrifice. Thank you so much for this congregation, for what she strives to do, what she's striving to do, even in something such as this, to, to encourage families, to encourage the, the family and the church relationship. And, and Lord, I just ask that uh, you will continue to bless her, continue to use her in her context, continue to build the families up within this setting. And Lord, continue to allow that, that relationship to be a mutual blessing between the church and the home. Lord, I pray today I stay out of your way. This is about you, not me. And Lord, I pray that we would have hearts ready to receive your word, that we have minds that are ready to receive your word, and, and that it's your word that we glean. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Philippians. This morning, as we get into this good book, we're going to to study a, a concept that, that I relate to, I, I pray you will be able to relate to, and, and that concept I'm going to use as an illustration is an ice cream sundae. You say, why an ice cream sundae? Because I know it will it'll get your attention and make you hungry. And there are going to be some of you, when you leave, you're going to say, I've never considered the book of Philippians in light of an ice cream sundae. But if I can put that in your mind today and, and explain why then you'll never look at the book of Philippians the exact same way again. You see, this good book is a book that was written while the Apostle Paul was not in very pleasant circumstances. As a matter of fact, he had, in a way that maybe is not consistent with what you and I would do, we, we tend to be absorbed in our own circumstances, especially if things are going bad. We, we focus in our own pain, we focus in on our own hurts, Maybe an injustice that was done towards us. Mistreatment that was done towards us. And it makes it very difficult to be others focused and to be heaven focused when all we can see are our own struggles. But you see right out of the gate in Philippians chapter 1, we learn in, a, in multiple ways that the Apostle Paul is in prison. This is one of his letters that was written while he was in prison and we can see that specifically brought out of verse 7 where the Bible says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Now it's not the only time he'll bring out his circumstance. As a matter of fact, this morning there's going to be a lot of connecting of the dots. So if you're taking notes, get your pencil ready. Because I want to show you multiple times in the scripture where there are commonalities and there are words that are repeated over and over again. His circumstance is one of those things. Chapter 1 verse 12 is another occasion where the Bible reads this way. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, the Bible again echoes his circumstance 
When it says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Verse 14 is another occasion. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Down in verse 17, he'll mention that again. And you're saying, that's quite a few times. Well, yes, it is because here's why. Because within the book of Philippians, there is what is called an others above self motif. In other words, you put other people above yourself. That, that is a common theme within the book of Philippians. Jesus Christ put himself below you. He put you above him in coming to this earth. And the Apostle Paul is demonstrating in his own life that for him to die would be gain. But for him to live on would be better for the Christians there in Philippi. So he would just assume, go ahead and die and move on. You say, Joe, where is that? Chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The Apostle Paul put the church at Philippi above himself. Jesus put you above himself. And here's one of the main messages of the book of Philippians. You need to put other people above you. And you look at that and you say, Joe, that is so simple. I mean, if you were just to, to, to end the sermon there, I mean, that, that would be enough that, that we understand the two greatest commandments as Jesus was asked to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, I know I need to love God before me. I need to love my neighbor before me. I need to evaluate that relationship that I have with my neighbor. And so, Joe, that is consistent throughout the scripture. And you would be right. You would absolutely be right. That is consistent throughout the scripture. So let me ask you a question. Why is it that we sometimes struggle with that? If it's consistently taught through Scripture, why is it such a hurdle? Why does it seem like it's such a struggle at times to put other people above ourselves? Well, we're going to study that and I believe come to a conclusion, but also come to an answer. You see, because as we look at this ice cream sundae, we're going to do so from the standpoint of three words specifically. And as we do it, I'm going to illustrate it by a triangle. Why? Because if I put an ice cream sundae on the screen, you wouldn't listen to what I was saying. You, were, you would be tasting that ice cream sundae in your mind. So it makes it more difficult to taste a triangle, but it's the same concept. And so here's the deal. Many of us have studied the book of Philippians from the concept of joy. And if you've ever done that, then you're absolutely correct. There's a reason. It's because that word joy is repeated numerous times throughout the book of Philippians. As a matter of fact, it's stated in every chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 verse 18. It's actually translated in the New American Standard, rejoice. Chapter 1 verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2 verse 2, make my joy complete. Chapter 2 verse 17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Verse 18, you too I urge rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Verse 28 of chapter 2, therefore I have sent him all, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Verse 29, it's there. Chapter 3, verse 1, it's there. Chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 10. And in all of that, you look at it and say, Joe, and and this is the way I work. I'm not the smartest Bible student out there. But I've learned a few things being married. And I do believe it's helped me in my Bible study. And here's what I've learned in marriage. Men, you may can echo this. If she repeats herself numerous times and says the same thing, she might be expecting you to listen to that. You're like, well, I never heard you say it. And wives, you go, oh, I said it 15 times. And you're like, I thought you would eventually catch on at 13, 14, or 15. And all of that is this, that when you read it, when you hear it repeated numerous times, that is significant to the message. So for our lesson today, I want you to consider joy, but I want you to consider joy as the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. And you see, and if I were to tell you, hey, I'm going to give you an ice cream sundae today, but all I gave you was a bowl that had one of those little cherries in it, You'd look at me and you'd say, Joe, I don't know how you make ice cream sundaes in Tennessee, but this is Texas, and that's not called an ice cream sundae. You would be correct. A bowl with a cherry in it is merely a bowl with a cherry in it. And so if your knowledge of the book of Philippians stops at the concept of joy, then I would offer this to you. You get the cherry on top, but you miss, you miss so much of the context. You see, the context of Philippians is that there are two sisters that are having difficulties. And if you look over at Philippians chapter 4, you're going to learn that these two sisters named Euodia, verse 2, Euodia and Syntyche, that these sisters, and we're not told exactly what's going on, except we are told that obviously they are not living in harmony. And the reason we know that is because chapter 4 verse 2 says, I urge you, Odia, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. They wouldn't need the urging if they were actually doing it. But then I think it's interesting that you look at verse 3 and the Bible reads this way. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I want you to think about the description of these ladies. These ladies are put into the same category as one is known as Clement. Clement, from a historical setting of everything we know about individuals, uh, an individual specifically within the early days of the church, was a, a pillar in the church. These individuals that the Apostle Paul describes are not Sunday morning only Christians. These individuals, they showed up and they showed out. They came to the table not with a a consumer mentality of what will you do for me, but with a producer mentality of what can I do to advance the cause of the gospel. You see, they had the right mindset, they had the right heart set, they had the right actions. But that shows us something about God's people. Sometimes faithful brethren may not always see eye to eye. You see, sometimes we assume that if there's going to be problems... That there's got to be only problems between one who's faithful and one who's not faithful. Because after all, if a problem exists, then somebody's going to be obviously sinning. 
Let me ask you this, in a, in a family situation, husband and wife, is there ever a disagreement that exists over something that is a matter of opinion? Is there ever a disagreement over something that is a matter of, of an opinion, but then people decide that maybe they got a little sideways with each other? Maybe perhaps they didn't talk to each other for a little bit. Maybe perhaps somebody said something that they shouldn't have said. And, and I'm not suggesting to you that that's okay. What I'm offering to you is that every marriage that I'm aware of, every marriage has to work through things. Young people, you need to hear that. We have a, a group of young people today that, that believe, not necessarily here today, don't take me to say that, but we've got a group of young people that believe if there's any struggle in the marriage, if there's any difficulty in the marriage, that one of the first things you do is you just bail on the marriage. And then one of the things I love to do is, is I love to talk to people who've been married 50 plus years. Part of the reason is because I've got a lot to learn within my own marriage. Aaron and I have have been married 21 years this year. So I'm still wet behind the ears. She's still raising me up. But what I have learned, I've learned this, that I want to listen to the wisdom of the people who've been there and who've walked the road for 50 plus years. I've heard a lot of things about advice. I've heard individuals say, you know what, when you made a commitment, you made a commitment and that was it. I've heard people say divorce was never a part of our vocabulary. I've heard one individual say this, and I thought it was great. He said, sometimes you just have to go to the garage. I said, what's the secret to 50 years? He said, sometimes you just got to go to the garage. I'm like, well, that can mean a couple things. Is it that I need to have hobbies, and she needs to have hobbies, and it's okay to have hobbies? And, or is it sometimes you just need to go to your corner, right? You need to go to your corner and come back when cooler heads can prevail. Chances are he was saying both. But the idea is this, I've learned something in life and that is that every marriage has struggles that they have to work through. Young people, maybe one of the lessons you need to hear today is this, in your future marriages, when you make a commitment, you make a commitment. When you have struggles, it only means that you, you hold on fast to one another even more. And you continue to surrender to Jesus. That's how you make 50 years. I'm learning a lot of things. But you see, why do I bring that out? I bring that out because sometimes we look at relationships and we say, well, when there's a problem, then there's got to be a sin issue. We don't know what Yodi and Syntyche's disagreement was over. We don't know. We do know Paul and Barnabas had disagreements. And they even went their own ways. But there's no indication that Paul had to repent or that Barnabas had to repent. They just had a disagreement and decided to do something different. Sometimes in healthy relationships, disagreements occur. Now here's though the impact within the book of Philippians. Whatever's going on between Yodia and Syntyche, it is robbing the church of joy. And that's why the Apostle Paul is writing here from prison to a church that he loves, to a church that he longs to go visit. And he tells them, he says, you need to live in harmony, Yodia and Syntyche. But beyond that, when you've got two individuals that are not handling it on their own, he then in verse 3 says this, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. Well, who's the true companion? 
I mean, that would be great if the Bible always answered all those questions. I believe it does, but I'm going to show you why I believe it does. Because when the Apostle Paul writes this letter, there's no indication he's writing to one individual. I can turn over to Philippians chapter 1, and what I can see is who the audience is, chapter 1, verse 1, where the Bible reads this way, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Who is the book of Philippians written to, or to whom is it written? It's written to the Christians in Philippi. So my conclusion on the true companion is the church. He's actually writing to the church and he's saying there are two sisters amongst your number that aren't getting along and it's causing problems in the church. The church is losing out on its joy. And so I'm, I'm calling for the church to help these women live in harmony again. That's the context of the book of Philippians. And, and there's other things going on. Chapter 3, there's obviously a Jewish component who's trying to come up and rob the joy away from the Christians by telling them they need to become circumcised like the Jewish belief system would teach. And, and the Apostle Paul in three occasions says, beware, beware, beware. And so there's that attack. There's the attack of what's going on from within. And, and ultimately you get the picture of the cherry on top of the Sunday. It seems to re, remain elusive. It's, it's, it's like there, but they can't fully have it. And so what the Apostle Paul says is this, we got to fix this issue. And in fixing the issue, he lays down the next line. And this, in our particular lesson, would be like the ice cream scoops on the ice cream sundae, right? Every good ice cream sundae better have ice cream or it's not ice cream sundae, right? So here's what he says. He goes, if you're ever going to have, if you're ever going to have biblical joy, a joy that surpasses circumstance, a joy that just is a part of the culture, it goes below the surface... If you're ever going to know that joy, then you must have biblical koinonia. You must have biblical fellowship. Let me show you where I get that from. It's again one of those words that's repeated in every single one of these chapters. And my default is this. If the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to use it on a regular basis, it's got to be significant to the message and so what I read is that the word koinonia occurs firstly over in chapter 1 verse 5. And here's the way the English translates that word. Because sometimes, sometimes we don't understand what fellowship means. You know, down over in Tennessee, and I've lived in Texas before. Actually in Crowley, Texas. Dad was a preacher in Crowley. My people come from Waco. So I actually have roots. I know y'all know what fellowship meals are. You know the glory of a casserole dish, okay? You know the dinner on the ground concepts, right? So the idea is this. Sometimes we equate fellowship with a meal. And I want you to know that fellowship is not a meal. A meal can be included within fellowship, but fellowship actually is something that you could have a meal with somebody and never have fellowship. So here's the way that the word is translated in the New American Standard. Verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And here's the word, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word is again repeated in verse 7 where the Bible says this, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You all are, here's the word, koinonia, partakers of grace with me. 
So I have participation. I have partaking. Over in chapter 2 verse 1 we see it translated as straight up fellowship in the New American Standard. Over in chapter 3 we see it in verse 10 translated as fellowship. Over in chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 though we see it translated as the English word shared. So here's the, the concept if we're just going off of the English translation. And I know that's not always the best because translators are the ones that came up with that. But here's the picture that is painted. Participation, partaking, sharing, fellowship. If I could give you an image, this is what I would tell you biblical fellowship is. You see me out in your parking lot and I have a rope over my shoulder. On the other end of that rope, there is a pallet that has a humongous boulder on it. And I am pulling with everything that I can to get that boulder to come with me. You walk up to me and you say, hey Joe, what are you doing? Uh, I'm pulling a rope that has a boulder on it. You are, that sure looks heavy. Well, it is heavy, it's very heavy. You sure are sweating. You're absolutely right, I'm sweating. It's hot out here and I'm trying to pull this boulder. And you put your hand on my shoulder and you say this, well, I sure hope you get it done. And then you walk away. You've acknowledged my task. You've acknowledged the strenuous effort of which I'm putting forth. You've acknowledged that you want me to accomplish that task. And then you gave me an affirmation as you left. Now let me ask you this. Is there a difference between that picture and this one? I'm pulling on the rope. Boulder on the pallet. You come up to me and you say, Joe, what's going on? I say, well, i got to get that rock over here. And you say this, let me help you. And you grab a hold of the rope behind me and together we pull the rock in the same direction. Is there a difference between those two scenarios? Shake your head like this. One included participating. One included sharing. The other included an acknowledgement and an affirmation. You see, fellowship is an active term. That's why I tell you it is absolutely possible for people to sit in this building today and not have fellowship. Because fellowship's not just sitting in a building and even singing songs. Fellowship's not having a meal. Fellowship is actively pulling on the same side of the rope to accomplish the same task and you're both exerting the effort together. That is biblical fellowship. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says this, if you ever want to have biblical joy, you've got to have biblical fellowship. But he also says this, if you're ever going to have biblical fellowship, there's another component to this ice cream sundae. Like-mindedness would be like the bananas. I don't know, maybe we're having a banana split. Now I'm really making you hungry, right? We're having bananas in our ice cream sundae, and that's the foundation of the whole beauty of an ice cream sundae. But if I'm going to have biblical joy, then I must have biblical fellowship. But if I'm ever going to have biblical fellowship, then I've got to have freneo. I've got to have like-mindedness. And where does that come from? Well, when you look in your text, you're going to find out again, look, I'm telling you, this is pretty simple Bible study. 
All you're doing is reading these four chapters going, man, he's saying that over and over and over and over again. And then you take a look at it and you're like, whoa, that's the basis for everything. And that's exactly right. How is Euodia and Syntyche going to have their harmony if they're going to have Phernao? That's how it's going to be accomplished. How is the church going to have fellowship, Phernao? How is the church going to know joy ultimately through Phernao? How is the church going to live in such a way that you put others above self? And the answer is Phernao. Let me show you what I mean by that. This particular word is, is actually found in chapter 1 verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 2. And chapter 4, verse 10. At times it will be translated as the word heart. Such as chapter 1, verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart. At other times, it'll be translated as mind, such as what we find in chapter 2, verse 2, where the Bible says this, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Sometimes it'll be translated as the word attitude, such as in chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 15. Other times it'll be translated as live in harmony such as what we find, chapter 4, verse 2, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony. But what does that word mean? Sometimes it's easiest to understand Greek by understanding word pictures. So I'll give you a word picture. True story. When I first started out in ministry, I, I was in Columbia, Tennessee, my first preaching opportunity, and and there was a group of men there that loved to give me a hard time. As a matter of fact, I didn't have a name. You know, sometimes the preacher loses his name and he just called preacher. Well, that's all they called me, preacher, preacher, preacher. And they always loved to give me a hard time. It didn't matter what it was. And if, uh, if I went over a little bit, they loved to give me a hard time. I, I love the, the fact that congregations, this congregation to my knowledge, you don't have a clock in the front. I appreciate that. Some congregations have them over to the side and I just want to take it and smash the clock. I'm saying quit worshiping according to a clock. Jesus didn't die on a cross so that you can make sure you're out on time. The idea is this though, that when you think about those clocks, they help us keep on track. It's what we try to do. And sometimes we need to go over those. So sometimes I went back and this older gentleman back there, his name was Mike. He's since deceased, but he was one of my good friends. He was in his 80s. When I tried out at this congregation, he was one of those smart Alec guys, right? Name not Alec, name Mike, smart Mike guys. Then I went back there and he said, son, is that the best you can do? That was on my tryout. I didn't know how to answer. I said, well, yes, sir. I poured everything I could into it. He, well, that's all God will ask of you then. All right. One time he came up and showed me a, a, a quarter and on the quarter, you know how these new quarters have state images on the backs? And it was a state that had a, a horse on it. And he said, you said you had horses. Can you tell me what breed of horse that is? And here I am, young, thinking I have to have an answer for everything. And so I start looking at it, looking at how it was holding its head, trying to discern how many hands it was, how long it's back. And I said, I, I'm not real sure, brother. He goes, Joe, it's a quarter horse. <laughs> That's the people I was dealing with, okay? So it was an odd occasion when I would go back and maybe I went over. He would say, preacher, you went a little long today, didn't you? Well, I got to a point with Mike, I would just tell him as soon as he said that, I'd say, I just figured you need a little extra Jesus today, Mike. 
Well, I got an idea. I was going to change the clocks. I was going to turn every clock back 15 minutes. That way, if I went over, they would look like I got done early, right? Well, they changed out that clock in the auditorium with what's called an atomic clock. Atomic clocks, for those of you who don't know, you set a time zone, and then there is some type of radio frequency or satellite or something that sends a signal to that clock, and it sets the clock. Well, they didn't just change that clock. They changed every clock in the church building. I think they were trying to tell me something. But you know what I noticed about every one of those atomic clocks? Every one of those clocks ticked on the same hour, they ticked on the same minute, and they ticked on the same second. That's what the word phreneo means. And you look at that and you say, there is no way. Doesn't God know we are all different? Doesn't He know we have different personalities? We have different interests? Do we have different, even at times, uh, temperaments? Doesn't He know we're unique? And I would offer, God absolutely knows His creation. But yet He still says, if you're going to have biblical fellowship, you've got to have Phreneo. Well, Phreneo can actually be had. I want to show you an example. I'm a big Texas Ranger fan. I know I'm in Houston. Don't worry, I still... Don't appreciate your trash cans. Don't worry, okay? But the idea is this, that in the game of baseball, you and I both know that when a ball is hit, everyone, when they're operating on the same page, they have some place to go. Everybody has a responsibility. If the ball is hit to the left fielder, the center fielder is supposed to go back up the left fielder. The shortstop becomes the cutoff man, so the shortstop has to leave the dirt and go out into the grass. That makes the second baseman, he is required to cover second base. The right fielder doesn't just stand out there and pick dandelions and chase butterflies because he knows that a throw could be going straight from left field to second base. And if it gets past the second baseman, the first baseman can't back him up because the first baseman's got the responsibility for the runner who could be held up on first or going back to first. So the right fielder actually has to run up almost to the edge of the dirt where the grass is to back up a potential throw to second base. The third baseman cannot abandon third base. As a matter of fact, he might move over to back up a throw to the shortstop. But the pitcher cannot abandon the pitcher's mound because of the same reason. Now, the only time the pitcher will abandon the pitcher's mound is once the base runner has cleared first base and it is clear that the base runner is not coming back to first base. The first baseman is supposed to go to the pitcher's mound while the pitcher is supposed to go behind the catcher. The catcher cannot abandon his base because it's possible through errors that home plate could become open. So when a ball is hit to left field, everybody has to do something. It's the same way it is within the church. Sometimes say, well, I'm not the deacon over benevolence. It's not the ball wasn't hit to me. I would propose something to you. If a congregation exists that I only have to get involved when it is specifically hit to me, that is a congregation that will burn out her deacons. You want to know why your education deacon is probably the most overworked and underappreciated? It's because every time he calls up somebody to teach, he probably hears more excuses than you've ever heard in your life. And yet those Bible classes still have to have teachers. You want to know why there's such a high changeover? In many of the deacons' roles or they get burnt out and they say, hey, just rotate me to another deacon position. 
is because congregations at times will operate in a it wasn't hit to me mentality. I want to encourage you don't have that mentality here. I don't know if you do or not. I want to encourage you don't have that mentality because the reality is this. For a NAO, when it works well, there's great accomplishments. And when it works within your family, there's a beautiful relationship between husband and wife, parent and child, intergenerational concepts between grandparents and grandchildren that exist. That's where the joy is. That's the cherry on top of the Sunday. But if we're ever going to get there, then we've got to pick up the rope together and actively work to the same end called fellowship. And if we're ever going to have that, then we've got to be on the same page. Having our clock set to the same hour, the same minute, and to the same second. So the only question this morning that lingers is this. Well, what satellite, what radio is going to set our clocks? So we've talked a lot this weekend about the home. And we've talked a lot this weekend about the church and about father's responsibility in the homes, mother's responsibilities in the homes, elders' responsibilities in the church. We've touched briefly on deacons. But the idea behind that is this. You understand that in both of those capacities, there are those that we would assume would set the pace. And what I want you to hear from me today, just as a pure Bible study, is when it comes to the church, the Bible never says in the book of Philippians that you're to allow the elders to set your clocks. It doesn't say you're supposed to let your preacher do it either, just so you know. And I'm a fan of elders and preachers. In the home, it doesn't bring out that you're supposed to let the father set the clock, even though spiritual headship's on the shoulders of the fathers, or it doesn't say they let the mom set the clock. So if I just want to know what the book of Philippians is talking about when it says, hey, in order to have joy, you've got to have fellowship. In order to have fellowship, you've got to have like-mindedness. The only question that lingers in my mind is, who's going to set the clock? Probably the single most memorable passage in all of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 and following. Tell us who's supposed to set the clock. And church, I will tell you this. If you as a congregation allow this passage to speak truth into your heart, if you and your families will allow this passage to speak truth within your heart, you will be blessed because of it. The text says this. Have this attitude, or some of your translations say mindset. Some of your translations will say heart. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who sets your clock? Jesus. And he doesn't set it because he gave you a command. He sets it because he showed you what it looked like to put others above yourself. Can you imagine a marriage where a husband puts his wife completely above herself? 
or above himself. Can you imagine a marriage where the husband pours everything into his wife and the wife puts her husband above herself in every way? She pours everything that she is into her husband. Let me ask you a question. Which one of those two will ever be empty? The answer is neither. You know why most marriages that I've had the privilege to be in counseling sessions with, why they ended up in counseling? is because usually this is the way the discussion goes. I give, I give, I give, and he doesn't give me anything in return. What do you mean you give, you give, you give? I've told you what would make me happy and you continue to not do those things. Well, I'll tell you why I continue to not do those things. Because five years ago, ten years ago, you hurt me and so yes, I've quit giving. What do you mean I hurt you? Because 15 years ago, you told me that you made a promise that you were going to put me first in your life. Put me first in your life. You love your job more than you love me. And you're like, no, marriage counseling sessions don't go that way. Yeah, they do. And usually here's the way the solution is offered. When he gets his act together, we'll have a great marriage. When she gets her act together, we'll have a great marriage. And here's the truth. As long as both of them continue to look at their marriage the way that they're looking at it, they will never have a good marriage. You see, because when you empty yourself of you and you pour yourself into someone else, you make yourself vulnerable. And that terrifies some of you. Because in your vulnerabilities of your past, you've had people take advantage of you. In your vulnerabilities of your past, you've had people not show up and they said they would. They've let you down. And you know what happens? Sometimes you bring that into your marriage. And it holds you back from emptying yourself of you because you have so much a need to be defensive. Here's what I want you to hear in your homes. I'm sorry that other people have hurt you. I'm sorry some of you didn't have good daddies. Some of you didn't have good mamas. I'm sorry some of you were abused. But you need to understand something. That wasn't Jesus who did that to you. Jesus gave himself up fully for you. You entered into a marriage with an individual who said they wanted to pour themselves into you. And in that relationship, they're saying for you to respond because you trust that Jesus is going to take care of fulfilling those needs. You trust that that man, that woman in your life is going to take care of fulfilling those needs. And I promise you this, when both couples, when the husband and the wife do that, neither one of them will ever have a want that doesn't go fulfilled. In the same manner, you and the church, the church pours themselves into your spiritual well-being. You in turn pour yourself into the mission and the advancement of the cause of the church. And you know what you're going to find out when you put others above self 
you let Jesus set your clock, you're going to find a healthy relationship within the church and between the church and your family. You say, Joe, how do you know that? Because I firmly believe that God doesn't lie. I firmly believe that when He tells me the way that it works, that it works. It doesn't mean people won't disappoint you. People will. But that doesn't mean God's way is bad. This morning, the biggest question that we have as we contemplate this lesson is in your life individually, are you letting Jesus set your clock? I'm not asking, did you at one time let Jesus set your clock? When I obeyed the gospel, I let him set my clock. I'm asking you today, right now, is Jesus setting your clock? And here's what I know. Most of us, during the singing of invitation songs, we've already decided whether or not we're going to respond before the song ever comes about. Some of us have already decided this. Well, I'm sure glad that person was here to hear that sermon. They really needed it. Or we'll say this. I wish my son, my daughter, or so-and-so was here because they really could have heard that lesson. I'm not asking you to apply today's message to everybody else. I'm asking you to apply it to you. So husbands, I'm going to be bold with you right now. If I were to ask your wife, if you are allowing Jesus to set your clock, what would she tell me? He always offers to pray with me, Joe. He leads our home spiritually. As a matter of fact, he opens the Bible and he makes sure that every day we study God's word at home. Husbands, I'm asking you a blunt question because I know most of us would say yes. What would your wife say about you? And here's one that's even worse. If I were to ask your children, does your daddy let Jesus set his clock what would your children say? Well, he sure yells at me a lot. He doesn't seem patient. Or would they say this? My daddy is trying to be what God would have him to be. He loves me. He leads me. You say, why would you say that about dads? Here's why I say that about dads. Because studies will show that when the dad is a faithful Christian that there's about an 80 to 90% chance that his family will be faithful. You want to know why I'm asking you dads? Because you and I, we really do set the pace. Ladies, is, God, is Jesus setting your clock today? What would your husband say? Well, she's just kind of temperamental. She's always losing her cool. She's not the same woman that I married. Well, get, get this, husbands, you're not the same man she married, so get over that one. Or would he say this, my wife is so patient and gentle. My wife doesn't need to raise her voice because she leads by example. Is that what your husband would say? What would your children say about you, moms? How would they describe your walk with the Lord? Grandparents, you're not exempt from this. Is Jesus setting your clock? Or have you retired on Jesus?
Is it somebody else's job now? You say, Joe, we, we liked you until this invitation. I'm getting on a plane at 4.50, that's okay. My goal has never been for you to like me. My goal has been to present God's Word in such a way that it causes you to consider the truth of His Word. Elders, is Jesus setting your clock in the way you shepherd? What would the membership say? I know it's not a popularity contest, but what would they say? Deacons, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus setting your clock? What would the people who you try to work for and serve say? What would your elders say? Members, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus setting your clock? You say, Joe, how do I know? It's pretty simple. Do you put others above yourself? Do you empty you of you? Do you take on the form of a bondservant? Have you become obedient, even to the point of death, You see, this morning during the invitation, all of us will have to answer those questions. All of us will answer those questions because my goal is for you to be at a crossroads of of having to say yes or no. And here's what's beautiful. You're all going to give a yes or no answer just in a minute. Because we're going to lead a song here that we've called an invitation song. And during that invitation song, it's tradition that we'll stand. I assume that's the way you do it. And the invitation will be offered that if we can assist you in any way, that we'll be down front, your shepherds will be available to you, or maybe they'll be available along the back. I'm not sure where your shepherds will be, but they're ready to respond to the sheep. And some of us will stand up, and here's what we'll say. Man, that preacher went long. I am hungry I'm ready to go. And we might as well stop singing an invitation song for you. You say, I can't believe you'd say that. Oh, I've stood before many a congregation and looked into the eyes and seen who was serious about it, who wasn't, who was not even singing at all. We see a lot of things as a preacher. And there are some people that can't wait to get out of here as soon as the amen is said. For you, an invitation song is a waste of time. There are going to be other people who will stand and sing this song and what they're going to do is this. They're going to say, God, you and I are good. Joe asked me if Jesus, your son, is setting my clock. You and I are good. And I would say this, I pray that that's right and keep on being faithful because you know what? Some of you can say that. You can There are going to be other people who will stand up and they'll say this, there's no way I'm going to be vulnerable to this body of people. I don't know them well enough. And you will allow your insecurities to prevent you from making change if change needs to be made. There are going to be some of you that will make changes in the pew quietly. You'll say, you know what, I haven't been what God wants me to be and I'm going to to make that change here and I'm going to go home and things are going to be different. And then there may just be one of you. Maybe it's a father who knows that his wife and his children are looking at him as this invitation song is sung and the question has been asked, is Jesus setting your clock? And that father 
he may realize that if I stay in this pew, it's going to be hypocritical. There may be a mother who says, if I stay here, it's going to be hypocritical. Because I know I haven't been letting Jesus set my clock. There's going to be somebody that contemplates responding. I don't know if that's you right now. I don't know what category you put yourself in, but here's what I do know. During the singing of this invitation song, every single one of us is about to give God an answer to whether or not Jesus is setting our clock. What will your answer be? If it's no, come forward. If you've never obeyed the gospel, then I've got to tell you this, that you, you don't know what it is to let Jesus set your clock. The Bible simply tells us that if we confess Jesus as Lord, repent of our sins and are immersed or baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, that we'll be resurrected to walk in newness of life, a new life that includes from that moment forward Jesus setting our clocks. Some of you may have never obeyed the gospel, therefore you don't know what it is to have Jesus set your clock. Some of you may just need prayers because you're struggling in your family to be consistent in that. I don't know what your needs are. But I can tell you this, I don't preach to give information just for the sake of information. I don't believe that's what the scriptures teach. I preach God's word because God's word, when it meets a heart that is ready to receive it, has an impact that will last into eternity. I pray that that's your heart this morning. And if we can help you in any way, we invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing.